This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 120, the 10th part of the Ultra Running Stranger Things series. This episode will share the strange life of Richard LeCouse of Massachusetts, who was one of the most prolific six-day runners of the 19th century, who became a scoundrel. Guess what? I've authored and published a book on ultra-running history, now available on Amazon, entitled Frank Hart, the First Black Ultra-Running Star. In 1879, Hart broke the ultra-running color barrier and then broke the world's six-day record with 565 miles, fighting racism with his feet and fists. I'm sure you're going to like this book. Find it on Amazon. Search for Frank Hart, that's H-A-R-T, Frank Hart Davy Crockett, and you should pull it up. The strange story of Richard LeCouse has never been told before. Piecing together his unusual life story was an adventure in itself. He was once a famous elite ultra-runner or pedestrian from Boston during the late 19th century. As with other runners of his time who amassed a fortune in winnings, he chose to use that money for nefarious purposes rather than for good. His life turned from a race around a track for six days to a race to stay ahead of the law and one of the most skilled detectives in the country. In his wake, he left behind abuse and corruption until deciding to make an honest living in Montana in the mine industry to conclude his life. Richard Lacouse, a French-Canadian, was born in 1848 in Montreal, Canada. He was the oldest of eight children. By 1870, the family moved to Fall River, Massachusetts. Once he reached adulthood, Richard left home seeking adventure and athletic performances. He claimed that he became acquainted with Charles Bloden, a man who had shocked the world by walking over Niagara Falls on a tightrope in 1859. Blondin's preparations were complete by 5pm when he mounted the cable on the American side wearing a yellow tunic, pink tights and thin leather shoes. With the aid of a 26-foot-long balancing pole, he then began to make his way across the churning waters below. A third of the way across, he even lowered a rope to the sightseeing boat made of the mist to obtain a bottle of wine from which he drank before continuing his crossing. After reaching the Canadian side, Blondin rested for a short while before returning to the other bank. Blondin taught the cows how to rope walk but the young man gave it up after a serious fall during an exhibition. He next became a trapeze performer for several years, claiming to be a star in P.T. Barnum's circus. In 1873, he gave up the circus, settled in Boston, Massachusetts, married Catherine Buckley, and started a fish market. The business venture failed, and he became a bricklayer. Lacouse first appeared in newsprint in 1875, not for a great accomplishment. He was arrested and accused of stealing $150 worth of property from various people outside of Boston. He was living in the slums of Boston where he worked as a bouncer and bartender in various houses of ill repute. In 
In May 1879, at the age of 31, Lacoste made his debut in pedestrianism when he participated in the first big ultra-running event in Boston, Massachusetts. It was an interstate pedestrian tournament relay race between teams from Massachusetts, Maine, and Rhode Island. It was called the Bean Pot Tramp, held in a mammoth tent at the Riding Academy in Back Bay, Boston. With the popularity of pedestrianism taking fire, Lacoste decided to try out the big event. It was reported, He said he was undersized at that time, but his legs were hard as iron and sinews of steel wire. The tryout was a revelation to the management of the tournament, which immediately bargained with Lacoste to join the Massachusetts team. Each team consisted of 12 runners. Each day for six days, two runners on each team would run for six hours. Maine came out on top, but Lacoste, often referred to as the Frenchman, ran more than 35 miles during his turn, which was the second furthest of all the runners in the competition, earning him $75. For the final week of the tournament, he competed in a six-day walking match with 20 others. He put on an impressive performance. Lacoste is still in the lead. He is a wonderful specimen of humanity. His feet are badly blistered, yet he walks with apparent ease, and for pluck he has no equal. During the morning, he frequently spurted around the track for two or three laps at a time. On the final day, he was in close competition with Frank Hart for the win, but then ran into serious trouble. Some outsiders gave Lacoste some stuff to drink, which in a few moments acted on him in a strange manner. He looked insane and began striking himself with a stick and showing other signs of insanity which caused him to be removed from the track for some two hours. He lost his lead, and when he came back, he fell senseless on the track. His friends pled with him to quit, thinking that he would die. At this time, he looked wild and ran out of the tent to get ice water. He was immediately taken back to the tent where he begged for rest but his trainers insisted on him staying on the track. The referee made a doctor check him over and diagnosed that he was delirious and suffering from congestion on the brain. He was put to bed, rubbed for an hour, and fell four miles behind heart. Lacoste insisted on returning to the track and after being given some stimulants, he, quote, started out and ran like a deer. Hart also collapsed and it was thought for a while that he was dead. But after an hour, he revived and was taken home. Lacoste won the race with 427 miles, three more than Hart, winning $300, valued at nearly $9,000 today, and made a big splash for himself in the sport in Boston. Lacoste attempted more six-day races every few weeks. In July 1879, with a growing ultra-running reputation, he was accepted to run in O'Leary's six-day, 12.5 hours per day race in a field of 20 at the Music Hall in Boston that included all the principal winners of long-distance races in New England. The cow stopped frequently before the scorer stand looking at the score, evidently forgetting that he was in the race, and it required all energies of his trainers to force him along. Later on, his mind seemed to go to mush. Lacoste showed signs of mental suffering. He talked at random and once or twice became so forgetful of the real work he had in hand as to stop to talk with various parties on the track. 
He finished in a respectable fourth place, with 256 miles winning $50. Lakaus and his family still lived in a rough neighborhood of Boston. They couldn't stay out of trouble. His landlady, Bridget Costello, confronted Lakaus's wife, Catherine, for their rent money. Catherine picked up a stone and threw it at Costello, causing a wound on her forehead. Costello's sister, Kate, then hit Catherine with a clothes pole, which also hit their 15-month-old son, Joseph. The confrontation blew up, hit the newspapers, and Catherine Lacouse was convicted of assault. Lacouse was away from home much of the time, trying to compete and win money in nearby races. In August 1879, he ran in a six-day, 75-hour race in Providence, Rhode Island. Lacouse is looking in good condition for a man that during the past few months has been in many pedestrian contests. The little Canadian deserves much credit for his pluck. But Lacouse experienced the fatigue that eventually catches up with an ultra runner. After 107 hours, he dropped out because of sickness. Did he learn? Perhaps not. The next week he competed in another race in the Music Hall in Boston. He showed amazing determination in a close race and won the race with 281 miles, earning him the Ennis Medal and $200. His winnings were piling up, and he was becoming a very rich man. Lacouse was ready for the big time. The Rose Six-Day Race in Madison Square Garden in December 1879 against 65 of the country's best ultra-runners, including talents such as John Hughes, Steve Brody the Newsboy, Frank Hart, and Old Sport Campana. But Lacouse's recent massive miles finally caught up with him, and he quit after reaching 188 miles. During his short 1879 pedestrian career, he had already run 2,280 miles in 11 races and won about $1,500. The most prestigious race of his career came in February 1881, the O'Leary Championship belt in Madison Square Garden in front of thousands. Lacouse looks remarkably fresh, but he is believed to lack the grip necessary to carry him through the week. He surprised many and climbed the leaderboard into fourth place for the final days. Large wagers of $5,600 had been made that he would finish in second or third place. However, old Ben Curran was performing so well, 12 miles ahead, that he was disrupting this wager. Lacouse surrounded himself with shady characters. His backers boldly approached Curran to give up third place for $1,500 worth of wager tickets. The bribe was accepted, but later discovered by race management, who made this public to keep the race legit. Lacouse finished in fourth place with 489 miles for a personal record. Lacouse didn't even trust his own men. He felt that he was being cheated, that his team had taken bribes to drag him. On day four, his trainer took him off the track and gave him something that, quote, seemed to set his frame on fire, causing him to become feverish. Was it true or just an excuse? He fired his trainers and disappeared from the sport for nine months. It was said that he was training himself hidden in the woods of Massachusetts. In December 1881, Lacouse attempted to come back and competed in the Ennis Six-Day Race at the American Institute Hall in New York City, this time without a trainer. He started weighing only 116 pounds. 
At this race, Patrick Fitzgerald broke the world record with 582 miles. Lacoste stayed with the front runners and broke 500 miles for the first time, finishing in fifth with 501 miles, winning $100. In a weak condition, he was carried to his dressing room, and attendants pulled off his shoes and socks that had not been removed for six days. He said, By jingle, my toenails, every one came off with the stockings and the outskin halfway to my knees. That's disgusting! Lacoste disappeared from the sport. During his three-year storied career, he had competed in at least 23 races, winning six of them, reaching more than 6,000 miles, and earned about five times the typical annual salary of the time. Instead of using his fortune for good, Lacoste turned to illegal activities to earn easy money. He established a boarding house in Gloucester, Massachusetts, it was located in the red-light district of the city, described as a den and noted for harboring females of bad character. It was famous for assaults, shooting affairs, and attempted suicides. Lacoste's place was actually a brothel, saloon, and gambling hall. It was reported, Lacoste made money fast and eluded justice on several occasions. By 1882, Lacoste divorced or left his wife Catherine. He married, or claimed to be married to, his housekeeper in 1882, Maud Edson, who had recently given birth to his son, Richard. In August 1884, after Lacoste returned home from a trip to Portland, Maine, he had a terrible argument with Maud. She stated that he attempted to shoot her, and that she took away the revolver twice. He then shot at himself, the bullet entering the back of his head. The authorities were called. Lacoste was conscious, and a doctor probed for the ball. The bullet went through the outside of the skull and was not found. It was said that the cause of the shooting was because of jealousy, but the true version of the affair couldn't be determined. Lacoste recovered and stayed with his wife. He later claimed that either Maud had fired the shot, or the gun went off accidentally, that he did not try to commit suicide. In 1885, a new mayor, John S. Parson, was elected, who was determined to shut down Gloucester's brothels. Lacoste's place was known to be a, quote, den of infamy, and a raid was conducted. Lacoste was arrested for, quote, maintaining a nuisance. Lacoste paid the bail. Four months later, Lacoste was arrested again for assaulting his now former wife, Maud Edson. She had sold her furniture and intended to leave Boston. Lacoste was accused of beating her. On the night of July 28, 1884, while the rebels were at their height in Lacoste's den, a piercing cry of murder was heard by the patrolman on the beat, and upon forcing an entrance into the place, he found Maud Edson lying bleeding on the floor, her features so battered that recognition was well-nigh impossible. The girl was insensible at the time and was removed to the hospital. Lacoste was arrested and tried on suspicion of being the assailant. When arrested, he said he was lucky that he was not being arrested for murder. The judge said it was one of the most aggravating assaults that had come under his jurisdiction for a long time and that the remark about murder was a confession. His case was referred to the grand jury, and another bail was instituted of $600. 
Lakaus came up with the bail again and was released. Soon after, Lakaus's Porter Street dive was again raided and illegal hard liquors were found. Officers saw five or six girls upstairs. The girls said they boarded and lodged there. The reputation of the house has not been a good one. One girl said that Lakaus had knocked her down once and dragged her downstairs. The entire place was said to be noisy and disorderly. A lengthy trial was conducted with witnesses, including Lakaus, who boasted that he did not have to pay police hush money to keep the place going, that instead he would make sure the annoying Mayor Parsons was voted out at the next election. He would be re-elected. Lakaus was found guilty of operating a place of prostitution and gaming, was fined $100 and sentenced to eight months in prison. Lakaus's assault case came before a grand jury, but despite the $2,100 bail, he fled to Galveston, Texas, where he went to work in a saloon. Galveston, oh Galveston. Maud, who apparently was his wife again, followed him there. Lakaus got into an argument with his employer over money, and right after he quit, the building was discovered to be on fire. He was suspected of causing it, but no firm evidence was found. He next opened a small restaurant and a cheap boarding house with Maud. In 1886, the district attorney in Gloucester hired the Pinkertons firm's best detective, M.J. Healy, to locate and apprehend Lakaus. Alan Pinkerton revolutionized detection. Soon, local sheriffs and businesses were asking him for help with horse thieves and counterfeiters. The detective was successful, arrested Lacaus in Texas, and they started for Massachusetts by the steamship San Marcos to New York. Before leaving, Lacaus tried unsuccessfully to bribe the detective to let him go ashore. Then on the way, Lacaus went on a hunger strike and was put on suicide watch. He was handcuffed for some time, but after a while the house was freed from iron bonds and mingled with the passengers in the cabin. The steamer stopped at Newport News, Virginia for coal, anchored about 11 miles from shore in Chesapeake Bay. One evening, the house was playing cards in the cabin. The detective went on deck to light a cigar, and five minutes later, a passenger reported that the house had left the cabin. A search was performed, but Lacaus was nowhere to be found. Several people were on deck at the time, and it was clear moonlight, but no one had seen a man go overboard. An intense search was made of the entire ship, including the cargo areas that were storing cotton. Once the ship arrived in New York, detectives watched closely until all the cargo was removed, but Lacaus was not found. It was believed that Lacaus jumped overboard as he would take any chance to escape. But as the sea was running high, there seemed no possible chance for his escape from drowning. The detective felt the loss keenly that Lacaus was only the second man lost by the Pinkertons in 35 years. The authorities presumed that Lacaus was dead. Some who knew that he was an extraordinary swimmer believed that he had escaped and would eventually turn up. To the great surprise of everyone, Lacaus did live, and indeed had escaped. On June 3, 1885, he was arrested at a pleasure resort about five miles from Galveston, Texas. He had indeed swum ashore, 
and made his way back to Texas and linked back up with his, quote, pseudo-wife, Maud. Last night, to the astonishment of the police, she appeared and swore out a warrant charging that Lacoste had again attempted to kill her. She divulged his hiding place. The chief of police, Jordan, engaged four mounted officers to ride down the island to apprehend Lacoste. Lacoste saw the cavalcade in the distance, guessed they were after him, and down the island he flew. The officers followed, their horses taxed to the utmost to overtake the runner. The chase continued five miles along the seashore, and Lacoste was finally captured under a farmhouse. Lacoste claimed that on the ship his escape was aided by a man from Boston and some of the crew who sympathized with him. He provided him with a life preserver, and while the detective was doing the honors for some of the lady passengers, he quietly slipped overboard and swam toward the shore. He said he saw Detective Healy and the other officers of the San Marcos flashing their lights over the side of the ship looking for him. He was laughing at them (laughs) from the dark water in the distance. It took him five hours to swim to shore. He then went into town where he found clothes, took a train to Baltimore, and returned by steamer to Galveston. Old sailors said the story was improbable. On return to Galveston, Lacoste had discovered that Maud had already taken up with another man and had sold his restaurant. He had demanded money from Maud, wanting to flee to Canada, but she refused, and then got into a fight during which he tried to kill her again, leading to his arrest. The Pinkerton Detective Agency just couldn't accept the wild escape story and believed that he had stowed away, escaped the search of the ship, and returned to Galveston by the same steamer. The Boston Globe also was skeptical of the amazing story. The story of swimming ashore sounds a little fishy. If the story be true, he ought to be fitted out as a cruiser to protect our fisheries. C. Burroughs, the captain of the San Marcos, gave a different story. He believed that when the ship went into dock at Newport News to obtain coal, that the cows, who was not being watched well by the detective, had simply lowered himself over the rail and swam 150 yards to the dock. Once they were out in sea again, in a search of the ship was made. The captain said, The story of Lacoste jumping from the steamer 11 miles at sea is a good yarn, but I don't like to see the public gold. The Pinkertons were again engaged to take Lacoste back to Gloucester, Massachusetts to face trial there. Legal wrestling occurred to extradite him. Lacoste wanted to remain in Texas, where he said had the best jail that he had ever stayed in. After a couple weeks of wrangling, Pinkerton Detective Healy got his man and took charge of Lacoste with the help of the Texas governor, John Ireland. This time he took the prisoner to Boston by railroad. Lacoste soon found his new home in Salem Jail in Boston. No details were found about his trial, but by about 1890, Lacoste, age 42, resurfaced in Butte, Montana, involved in mining with the Anaconda Copper Mining Company, where he worked as a bricklayer building smelters. The Anaconda Company essentially paid the bills of this state from 1890-95, when it was incorporated, until its, uh, until it, its demise in 1977. Uh, it was um, 
it was a, an economic behemoth. It was huge. It was the monster corporation. It, it, it employed, uh, it was directly responsible for maintaining, I would say, half of the people who lived in this state. He changed his last name to Locorse and soon became a respected member of the community of Anaconda. When legendary Daniel O'Leary came to town on a barnstorming trip with other runners in 1891, LaCourse quickly organized a six-day race championship at Evans Opera House that he also participated in. He was confident that he could win, so he held back during the early stages to let betting odds against him increase. Then he poured it on. He won with 501 miles, finishing in a suit of black, received a gold trophy with a figure of a man walking, and declared himself the champion of Montana. O'Leary reached 401 miles. A few other Montana races were held, but LaCourse finally retired for good and concentrated on making money mining. In 1893, LaCourse married for a third time to Annie Lonson, and they had two children. Even though he seemed to have cleaned up his life over the years, it wasn't surprising that he got involved in fights and lawsuits. In 1921, at the age of 73, he and his wife in retirement started to travel, taking vacations to California and Mexico, where he became ill. He said he began to feel like his natural self as soon as the train carrying him came within sight of the big smelter stack. On November 4th, 1923, Richard LaCourse died at the age of 75. He had not been feeling well since returning from an annual vacation in California. He was in a jovial mood when he sat down to the supper table with his wife Sunday evening, after eating remarked that he would lie down a while and rest. Shortly after he laid down, his wife stepped to his side to inquire how he was feeling and found him dead. Death had come peacefully and without pain. A long obituary was printed in the Montana newspaper that outlined his pedestrian accomplishments, but left out his wild escape in Texas. A large funeral was held for him attended by the Bricklayers and Masons Union. He was buried in Mount Carmel Cemetery in Anaconda, Montana. What legacy did Richard LaCourse leave behind? Sadly, it can be seen in his sons, who did not come with him to Montana. Back in Massachusetts, his son Joseph appeared in the news often. He became a notorious criminal in the Boston area, involved in burglary and escaping from prison. He followed in his father's terrible activities, and in 1903, he and his wife, Winfred, were arrested, accused of operating a brothel in Gloucester, enticing young girls from Boston to be part of their business that was frequented by sailors and longshoremen. They were sentenced to prison and fined. His other son, William, was arrested for breaking and entering a house in 1906. He was found hiding under a bed. He swore that he hadn't stolen anything and wanted it to be believed that he had crawled under the bed to go to sleep. <laughs> His children, born in Montana, lived good, hard-working lives. Richard LeCouse had won over Boston because of his pedestrian accomplishments, 
but those became a footnote once his true colors were revealed, living a life of abuse. Leaving that life behind, he finished with days in Montana as a respected citizen who still couldn't help boast about his running accomplishments, embellishing many of them, of course. Stay tuned for more ultra-running Stranger Things. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>